always looking for somebody exceptionally good to sing with. <laughs> well, if you have your Bibles this morning, let's, uh, let's turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 2. And uh, we're going to read verses 6, 7, uh, 8, 9, 10, 11. We're kind of kind of like a, uh, uh, what do they call it in the meteorology, the, uh, when a weatherman gets up, kind of a... Uh, um, cold air mass kind of stalled out over these verses here. Uh, there's a high-pressure system. That's what I'm looking for. Uh, there's so much in these verses that this whole chapter is built around, and if you just kind of blow through it, you really miss it. And chapter 2 is absolutely one of the absolutely key um, portions of Scripture for understanding uh, the ministry because the ministry is dealing with people. And as old Bob Jones Sr. used to say, the more he's around people, the better he likes dogs. And I you know, can totally understand where he's coming from, but dogs aren't the ministry, people are. So I want to read here, it says this, it says, Sufficient to such a man is this punishment which was inflicted of many, so that contrawise you ought rather to forgive him and comfort him, lest perhaps such a one should be swallowed up with overmuch sorrow." Wherefore, I beseech you that you would confirm your love toward him. Uh, for to this end also did I write, that I might know the proof of you, whether ye be obedient in all things. To whom ye forgive anything, I forgive also. For if I forgive anything, to whom I forgave it, for your sakes forgave it I in the person of Christ. Lest Satan should get the advantage over us, uh, of us, for we are not ignorant of his devices. Now, Lord, we pray you'll quiet our hearts today and let our minds focus on the passage here before us and put everything else out of our hearts and minds that we can look and see and understand this great passage here. We ask uh, your blessings today and your spirit leading to guide us into the truth that we have that we must learn. And Father, we'll thank you and praise you in Jesus' name. For sake we ask it. Amen. Now, so far we have seen and examined a tremendous amount of material and principles, in particular dealing with forgiveness from a Bible standpoint. You want to remember again that uh, as you're getting this material together, you have to have two sets of notes that you're working off of. And uh, one of them ought to be the running commentary of the book of 2 Corinthians. You want to put that in your wide margin Bible. You want to be able to, in time, to look at that, that book and pretty much be able to explain it or teach it based on the notes and how you've orchestrated them and put them in there and how important those are. The second set of notes is going to be in the back of your Bible, and that's where you're cataloging the principles. And the principles that you're going to learn to use, uh, we're going to build on this next year when we get to that phase of it, for those of you that want to do that. But, um, you know, most of this material uh, is really, through my time in the Word of God and my personal experience of just dealing with people for so many years. Uh, I made a, a study very early on that I knew that, uh, that you know, that the, the, the patterns of human nature were so key. And I, I saw that, you know, in dealing with people's issues, like I told you this last week, you've got to be able to identify the root problem. You're just kind of groping in the dark if you don't really be able to see a, any scenario and see it. Uh, and I say this again, not for what it appears. And that's what most people get caught up in. They look at the circumstantial stuff and then they try to make uh, some kind of diagnosis or some kind of decision on how to 
operate based on that. And it's always wrong or it leads to more problems because you've got to learn the patterns of people's uh, human nature and people's problems. People are different, but the patterns of human nature will always be the same. And that's why it's so crucial to be able to try to do that. You know, I've tried to learn from everything in life. I, I've always been that way. Uh, I think it's probably one of the single best things that I ever did in my life uh, that, really, uh, that really helped me. And that was that he never be, on any given situation, whether I agree with it or not, I may not like the, the situation, but I've learned that you never want to be closed-minded to anything and you want to learn from everything and everybody and every circumstance. I've told you many, many times, my whole ministry was basically, in learning the ministry, uh, was based on two guys who really, uh, uh, really, I think, formed and forged my, my ministry and of understanding of what I do. One of them was probably the best example that you could ever have in life of how to do it right. The other one was probably the worst example of, of how to do it. And, you know, I could have took the position where, well, I'm going to learn from this, but this guy's an idiot, so I'm not going to learn from here. And, that, of course, that, that's the way most people deal with things in life. If we don't like it, then we don't learn anything from it. And that's not a very good situation to be in. You have to try to learn from everything in life. Even the bad things in life you can learn and will help you if you approach it with the right attitude. You know, years ago, I remember talking to Mel, and uh, we talked about the old guys that really helped him. And he was part of an era where uh, the guys that really helped forge his life were uh, a number of guys, but two men in particular. And I heard him talk about them all the time, and he used them in examples all the time. And he talked about how much he had learned from them uh, when they took him under his wing, just like he took me under his, just like I've taken many of you under mine. But he lamented over the fact, and I remember just as clearly as it was yesterday, I mean, he lamented over the fact that when those guys died, all the knowledge that they had died with them. They never wrote anything down. Obviously, back then, they didn't have the, when these guys were alive, they didn't have the benefit of, of tapes and being able to tape everything and listen to it. Uh, they wrote nothing down. There was no written knowledge for any future generations. And I heard him talk, we were talking about it, and he says, what a tragedy. He said, those guys for 40 or 50 years, they, they knew what they were doing. They were the best at what they did, and they had so much that is now lost simply because, you know, nobody ever, ever wrote it down or recorded some of the great things that they had learned. And he had, I, I say that to you this morning, and Mel and I had that conversation, but the downside of the tragedy is that Mel did the same thing. Uh, he never wrote anything down. There was no record of any, never wrote any books, never did any, any papers, never did any, I mean, his stuff was uh, very rarely even put on tape. You know, it's said that Origen, and you know about Origen, he lived about 185, and he was the guy who was so uh, famous for uh, destroying the Bible that we, you know, with all the corrections. He basically took the Greek manuscript that, uh, came out of Antioch, which was the true one, took it down to Alexandria where his school was and basically read through it and he was an unsaved man. He was a pagan and everything, yet he claimed to be a Christian 
and he basically read the Bible. What he didn't like, he changed. And when he was done with it, there was over 60,000 changes between the, the Greek text out of Antioch and the one that he messed up down in Alexandria. And of course, through the process of time, that corrupted manuscript is now what is used for all the new Bibles. And it was origin that it is said that it had 20 full-time stenographers that were around him all the time that were recording every word that he said because they thought that what he had to say was so valuable that, that no word could be, that he spoke could ever be lost. And to what end? You know, the guy's burning in hell and just did more damage to the Word of God than anybody else. But all I have from Mel is what Mel had from Tommy Thomas and Phil Ward. And that is the sermons that I can remember the notes that are in my Bible from the Bible studies, the events that, uh, that I was part of, that I was there for. Uh, even when you go online, you know, you may find 15 or 20 sermons of his through somebody's website, but they're not where, they're all the older things that were done in the later part of his life. And uh, all that, all the knowledge and the truth and the application of the principles and the vast library that he stored in his mind for over 50, 60 years, it's all gone now. And there's no way ever to retrieve it. I, I, I was listening to the radio one time years and years and years ago, and I was listening to uh, uh, Oliver B. Green, and he was a great preacher. And along with him was another a good guy who taught the Bible. He was very simplistic in his approach, but he was a great guy. I believe the Bible, J. Vernon McGee. And both those guys were great soldiers, and both those guys were great uh, Bible teachers and great preachers. Well, J. Vernon McGee was more of a teacher, but Oliver B. Green was a great preacher. And I remember listening to them on the radio and listening to it, and I, I realized that they had been dead for 10 or 15 years, but yet they were still playing their material on the radio, uh, and people were still getting blessed, learning the Bible from it, because in that particular case, somebody had taken the time to actually keep that stuff that it could be passed on to future generations. Right then, at that point in my life, I made sure that I, that wasn't going to happen to me. Uh, I, I, I would try to document everything that I did, whether it be in the tapes or the books or whatever, to build an archive that 30 years from now, if Jesus doesn't come, God forbid, we hope he does, but somebody out there can find the truth. And I think that's really the problem today with why churches are messed up. Once we lost the Bible, truth went out the door, and uh, all the guys that were doing it were the old guys that uh, they didn't understand the concept of how important it was. I guess they never envisioned a day that it would be like it was today. And, you know, we need to leave some legacy of what the ministry should be and what, the, what Bible you should use, you know, to our own families first and then to everybody else. And I think this is the real issue you find back with the nation of Israel. You know, if you look in the first five books of your Bible, you got a book in there called Deuteronomy. And deutero means two. It's where we get our word duet from, much like Georgie and I are going to do here in the future. It's, a, it's, it's duo, it's two. And Deuteronomy simply means second giving of the law. Now, what happened back there in the Old Testament, if you know anything about it at all, is that the nation of Israel failed to do exactly what we have failed to do. They left their families, they left the little ones growing up, no legacy of what God had done. And when you get to the book of writing of the Deuteronomy, which takes place, you know, during that period of time when they, God had to give them the law all over again. 
because the first generation had never gave it out and carried it on, and they lost the truth of God much like we've lost the truth of God today. And so God had to put a book in there called Deuteronomy. And in the book of Deuteronomy, he actually gives them the law and all of the things that he gave to Moses that the people did not keep and have to give it to them again. So these things will carry on much farther than just you and me right now. And that is my overall goal. And I told you, remember, in dealing with problems and dealing with the Bible and dealing with people and even dealing with yourself, one of the great concepts I gave you long-term versus short-term. We always have a habit of looking at circumstances and things we do and only seeing the short-term consequences. And boy, that is a dangerous situation to be in. It's really dangerous to be in that when you're dealing with people because people tendency have gotten into problems. I'll tell you, every problem you and I got into is because we looked at the short-term of it and didn't look at the long-term of it and therefore acted on the short-term, and then we pay the price for the long-term. You see it like in, 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 a lot of people, when it comes to buying things, are, are impetuous. They just buy whenever they see it. I mean, they'll go out shopping and you know, see something, and they want it, so they buy it. They don't have the money, so they put it on a credit card. You see this a lot at Christmas. And Christmas is traditionally a time when everybody gets really depressed. And, and it's really not because of the time of the year. It's because you went out and spent all this money on things that you thought you had, and then in January, the credit card bill comes, and that's not enough to put you in depression. I don't know what is, you see. In other words, we do it in buying. We see something. I got to have this car. I want this house. I want this. I want that. When we really don't have the money to do it, or we have the money to do one of two things, but we do three or four things, and because we don't have to pay for it right then, just put the plastic out and it goes on that, it's okay until the bill comes in and then you say to yourself, wow. And then you think back and you say, man, I only wore that thing one time. Oh, man, you know what? You, but see, if you learn to look long-term first before making short-term decisions, and that's just about true in, in everything in your life. So, you know, uh, as we catalog these principles and learn them, uh, you will use them really the rest of your life and hopefully pass them on to your children and leave a legacy with others, with the people that you work with. And that's one of the things I want to talk to you about when we get into the prayer groups, how to do that. Now, so far, we have, over the last couple of weeks, we, we've, we've cataloged some main principles. And these are things, some of these you have on your list, some of them you don't yet, don't worry about that. Uh, don't even think about putting any of these down yet because some of these may or may not be what I give you, so don't even go there. Right now, you're just working on last week's stuff or last round stuff. But we, we kind of got a framework now. We know that the proof of our salvation is based on our obedience to the Word of God in the aspect of forgiveness. When that's based on the doctrine of the priesthood of the believer. We've learned that now. We studied all the aspects of the Old Testament priest and how it fits into your life and my life. This is built around two terms that we found uh, in Paul's writings. One place he said, I forgive you in Christ's stead. And the other place he said, in the person of Christ. We saw how when an, unforgiveness, uh, an unforgiving spirit prevails, the Bible says that Satan always gets the advantage of us uh, and in time defiles us. 
And we also learned that the reason why that happens is, is that one of the greatest principles you'll ever grasp, and that is because of the failure of the grace of God in your life and my life. Failing to give others the same grace that God has given us. This, uh, and then the last week we talked about how that we should not be ignorant of his devices. And boy, if you could grasp even half of what is in what we talked about last week, uh, you'll see that uh, how that thing really works out, how the Bible, uh, God says that he will not conceal his parts, his power, nor his comely proportion. Now, all of this material and uh, from, first, uh, from 2 Corinthians, from chapter 1 and chapter 13, is what we're going to build on. Each chapter is designed with a specific aspect. When you bolt them all together, then you have it. And today I want to lay out to you another great principle or concept on dealing with people. And I want to talk to you today about something that everybody needs to learn. And it helps us uh, deal, not only deal with people, but it helps us in our own life. And this is the principle of when I write, when what we do right becomes our wrong. And that's what I want to talk about today. Now, I want to focus on verses in chapter 2 where we read, but I just want to focus on three verses, 6, 7, and 8, and talk about it from here. It says, sufficient to such a man is this punishment which was inflicted of many, so that contrawise you ought rather to forgive him and comfort him, lest perhaps such a one should be swallowed up with uh, overmuch sorrow. Wherefore, I beseech you that ye would confirm your love toward him. Now, we know that this guy is the guy from 1 Corinthians 5 who got messed up in a sin situation in his own family, and it had reverberations that obviously cascaded through the church and caused a lot of problems. In the initial aspect, he doesn't want to do what's right, and then he does, and this is why Paul writes that. And this forms, as I told you this last week, this forms, very importantly, the basis for understanding how we are to deal with people in the aspect of forgiveness. Now, you're going to remember in Proverbs chapter uh, 2, verse 9, at the end of that great aspect I gave you uh, and laid out all the things that you do uh, to ask for God's wisdom, and I told you that the, the four things that at the end of that chapter down there in uh, the four things that you get back once you, uh, once you do what you're supposed to do there in verse 9. And this is really, these four things are absolutely the key to have the ability to work with people and understand your own self first. And the first thing that comes down here, he says, then shalt thou understand. And he listed four things. The first one was righteousness. The second one was judgment. The third one was equity. And then he said the fourth thing was, yea, every good path. Now, I know when you read those four things that you just kind of, oh, ho-hum, they're just words you find all through the Bible. But no, in our particular study, these are absolutely crucial that you understand these and then you see how to apply them. Your ability to understand uh, what righteousness is. And obviously, righteousness is what's right. Righteousness are the biblical principles, the biblical principles that you're going to catalog, you're putting them in your Bible right now, that forms your process of dealing with people's issues. So righteousness is not just being right. Righteousness are the biblical principles that you're going to use to put in people's life. And then the second one is judgment. And judgment is not just God coming down and clobbering you. Judgment is your ability to deal with issues uh, and deal and fix with what's wrong with people. That's what it is. 
You know, and you're going to find that this judgment thing, uh, when we think of judgment, we think somebody dying going to hell or the judgment seat of Christ, you know, or the judgment of the nations. But in dealing with people, here's the problem. There's different levels of judgment. Just like a, a police officer doesn't, uh, you know, you, a guy goes through a, a stop sign and gets a, or a speeding ticket, uh, they, the law deals with that differently on a different level than it does somebody that commits murder. And what you've got here is in dealing with people and their problems, you've got different levels of judgment. You, everything that's wrong has to be dealt with for the person to get a relationship back with God and be productive, but you've got to begin to understand the levels of judgment. And then the third thing is really the word equity. And this is the word balance, and that's exactly what we're talking about, knowing how to use the first two. Balance in dealing with people is simply understanding the difference between our righteousness and judgment, how to work between the two. Everything you deal with in people is not just going to be black and white. There's going to be areas where there's extenuating circumstances. There's going to be situations that you have to take into consideration. And everything has to uh, uh, be understood between these two, righteousness and judgment. And then he says the fourth thing, yea, every good path. And that is simply the options that you have. Knowing when you sit down with somebody, uh, the options you're going to give them. Many, many times when people come over and we sit down and we go through issues in their life or trying to work through things, uh, I can't solve their problems that one night. But the greatest thing you can do for someone is to give them a plan of how you're going to solve it. Let them go out of there knowing and understanding there's a process now here that if they do this, this is going to bring them around and this is going to help them. That's the key. And that's why these four things are so important. Your ability to understand, and I might add to be able to use, righteousness and judgment. The balance between the levels of what's right, what's wrong, and how you deal with it in between. And that's equity. That's the balance that we should have. And then understanding when you get into dealing with these things, uh, every good path. The options that you have, giving them the options of showing them what is the best way to fix the situation that they're in, and then and being there to help them. Now, the key verse today is going to be the verse that says, sufficient to such a man is this punishment which was inflicted by many. And uh, we're going to talk about the balance between righteousness and judgment and talk about it in dealing with people with problems when enough is enough. And this guy went through a lot. I'm not saying he shouldn't have went through it. He caused his own problems. And people who cause their own problems need to get out of their own problems. But at the same time, ah, here's where that balance comes in. Let me ask you a question. If you and I would do something really stupid, and we do, and we have, if you could look back in your life, you'd probably see a big blunder that you made. Maybe God rescued you from making a decision that ruined the rest of your life. Maybe he didn't. I don't know. But the bottom line is simply this. If you and I did something really stupid uh, to God, and we violated some principle, and we have, when you make it right, when you come to yourself and you realize that you were stupid and you did something wrong and you make it right with God, do you really, how would you feel if, if you had to continue to pay for that the rest of your life? You realize there's Christians out there that no matter what you do, 
when you try to make it right, they will hold it against you the rest of your life. And you'll never be able to get back with them where you once were. All because of the fact that, you know, they're not going to forgive you. They, they basically think you haven't suffered enough. And what Paul says here, and I don't know of a more horrendous thing that somebody could do than this guy did in 1 Corinthians chapter 5. I, I just don't know. But the bottom line is, there comes a time when Paul steps in and he says, okay, guys, enough is enough. This guy paid enough for it, and if you're not careful, you're right is going to become wrong. And that's where you got to be careful. Now, don't misunderstand me. And I don't want to, I, I want you to fully understand what I'm saying here. Sin always has its consequences. Galatians 6, 7 wasn't written in the Bible just because God wanted to use some filler. It's a true principle. Be not deceived, God is not mocked. Whatsoever man soweth, that will he also reap. And you will, we will, whatever you do, depending on the level of its severity, there will be consequences in a physical sense with that. But when a person won't repent, then you know what? The attitude uh, about sin is, is, is very clear. And we all said, as long as this guy doesn't want to do what's right, Paul makes no bones about it. He says, we're going to break from this guy, no fellowship with this guy, Turn him over to Satan for the destruction of the flesh that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. Now that's for a guy who doesn't want to do what's right. You see, it's his attitude about that sin. That's the key. And it doesn't matter what it is. I talked last week about attitude and action, and now you have a better understanding of that. Attitude is the change. Attitude of change in your life is now coming to the point that you see what you did or you see what you're doing. And it could be anything. It could be booze. It could be drugs. It could be whatever. Those things will really get a hold on you at some point in your life. And I've seen guys who, that were hooked on alcohol. I've seen people who were hooked on drugs. And they, when they went off the drugs or off the alcohol and they had to fight it, probably for a month their life was a living hell on earth. They, the alcohol, you get the DTs, you can get all kinds of issues. Drugs are the same way. I've actually, over the years, watched guys actually for a month or six weeks of their life actually think like, man, I, I just wish I could die. And during that period of time, I've heard every one of them say it. I was so stupid to get into this. Look at what it's doing to my body. If I ever get out of this, I feel so miserable. I'm throwing up every five minutes. I'm this, I'm that. If I got the shakes. I got the, I, I see bugs crawling the wall. If I ever get out of this, I'm going to never. And you know what? When they're out of it, six weeks, many of them go right back to that old lifestyle. You see, it's attitude about it. You will never, I don't know what your problem may be or even if you got one. But I know this, if you've got an issue in your life, I'm telling you, till you see that issue and your attitude about that issue becomes the same attitude God has and you hate that, not because of what it does to your body or you lost your family or you messed your, lost your job, that's the wrong attitude. You hate it because God hates it. Forget your family. Forget you lost your job. That's all physical stuff. You hate it and change your attitude because now you see it the way a holy God sees it and you want to be holy. As First Peter says, be holy for I am holy, saith the Lord. That's attitude change. Everything else will just be a window dressing. Everybody else, everything else will just drag you back into it in time. 
Because all you've done is address the action. It's like I've had people, I've had people that got divorced or having severe marital problems. And, uh, you know, and the guy, the guy, will, they'll be separated or whatever. And the guy will come in or the girl will come in or whatever, usually the guy. And they'll, they'll, they'll want to say, I'm sorry. And they want to say, I'll do, you know, I want to, I'm going to come to church. I'm going to do this. I'm going to do that. And I'll say, why are you going to do that? He says, because I want my marriage back. That's the wrong reason to do it. You don't start doing right because you want your marriage fixed. You do right because the Holy God says you do right. You see the attitude difference? Key. Absolutely key. Attitude change is seeing it as God sees it and then hating it as he does. That's attitude change. And Paul made no bones about what to do when this guy didn't want to do what's right. He says, and until he wants to forsake it and hate it, then he says, you stay away from it. But the moment he does forsake it, then it all changes. And this is why he says, sufficient to such a man is this punishment. He's saying, enough is enough. He says, we all climbed in on him, and rightly so. We all held him accountable. Hey, we threw him out of the church, and we turned him over to Satan for the destruction of the flesh. Doesn't get much, I was going to say better than that. It doesn't get much worse than that. But the bottom line is, when the guy came back, he said, hey, sufficient now to such a man is this punishment which was afflicted by many. He says, hey, enough is enough. You know why he had to say that? I know Christian patterns back there just like today. I'm telling you, there were people back there that were affected by this, who had their emotions involved, who simply said, he ain't suffered enough. I don't want him back. They didn't have the ability to forgive him. And of course, just as Paul was against him when he couldn't do right, 100%, now when he's sorry and he knows that he was wrong and he wants to do right, Paul says, I'm 100% for You see, Paul understands the balance between righteousness and judgment, and that's what you got to get to. That's what I had to get to. You see, Paul didn't take what this guy did personal. It bothered him. It grieved him. But he didn't, get, he didn't get his emotions involved. He dealt with it, yes, but he kept his emotions out of it. He never let his pride get into it. He never did. You know, churches, I was thinking about this the other day. Churches are like hospitals. They really are. Jesus was called the great physician. And some of you, uh, some of you, uh, you, you're like doctors. If somebody comes in, I mean, hospitals are for sick people. Churches are for sick people, spiritually sick. And people come, I mean, you got churches, I mean, you got people to get sick. You got colds, you got the flu, you got broken arms, you got appendectomies. In fact, when I used to, years ago, when I used to, uh, I had uh, a, a huge counseling ministry. I built it around three aspects, three levels of counseling. It's really more than that, but, you know, don't confuse them. I told them, I said, in dealing with people, it's like a hospital. It's like a medical facility. Jesus is the great physician but you're the attending physician, or you should be. Some of you will have the ability to be doctor. You know there's all kinds of doctors. There's different doctors that specialize. Some of you will specialize in delivering babies. That is, winning people to Christ and discipling them. Some of you will be, some of you will be heart specialists. Some of you will be cancer specialists. 
Some of you will be specialists to the point that you get that, that you can you can really focus on all of it, but you specialize in aspects of it. Because you got people, I used to tell them, you know, the first level is band-aids and methylene. People come in with just little ouchies and they got little problems and it doesn't take a lot of work. Then you have some people come in that they have broken arms and appendectomies. It's more serious, but it's not terminal. We can fix it. But then the third level is where you all ought to ascribe to get some point in your life, and that is heart transplants and brain surgery. You don't want some newbie opening up your skull. You don't want some guy, I had a doctor one time, and he was a, and this is, it's nothing, no, nothing against these doctors, because it was, a, and he was a good doctor, but he was young, but he was a D.O., and, and nothing wrong with D.O.s. I mean, they're, they're, they're great. This guy, I went to this guy for years. I would go to him today if I knew where he was. He was good when you went in for sick. But I had to have a particular procedure that was not only could be painful, but he needed to know what he was doing. So he's telling me. We're buddies, you know, we're friends. He's telling me. He says, well, I can take care of that for you. And I said, well, I said, okay. And he said, now he says, you know, and he gets his book out. Then he says, you see, here's what it looks like. He says, I've never done one of these before, but he says, I just follow the book. I'm thinking he wants me to hold the book, you know, so he can do it. That's what I'm thinking. I said, you know what? I just remembered. I got an appointment. I got to be back to. I said, uh-uh. I said, yo, what are you going to do? You're going to follow the book? I said, I don't think so. I said, I really appreciate it. I mean, if it was just a cold or something, but what you're talking about here, you know, I just think that we'll wait till you try out somebody else for two or three times before you try it out on me. But my goal has always been to build a church like a hospital. I mean, you got, you know, you got, you got people that get to that third level that they ought to have heart transplants and brain surgery. You can find yourself wherever you want. It's okay. When you walk into a KU Med Center, which is probably one of the finest hospitals around, you're going to find all kinds of things. You can go to the emergency room. Uh, if there's a, they have a trauma unit that you can, you know, if, if a gunshots or uh, your car wreck, you got a crack team there that can look at uh, your heart problems. And, and I was looking on the TV the other day about a hospital. And I forget which one it was. And it says, in, in, in talking about a stroke. And it says, in talking about how good they were. And it says, if you have a stroke, just get here. Now, I like that because everybody looking at it says, well, then they're going to they're gonna save my life, you see. They're, you got to be pretty confident to say that. So you roll in there with a stroke or you got a heart problem, whatever. They don't take any chances. They put a team around you. One guy draws blood, one guy does this, one guy does that, somebody else does this. And they all get together and bang, give you the best chance they can. That's the way churches ought to be. Some of you ought to be doctors in time. Jesus was called the great physician. And Jesus himself said, the whole need no physician. But in churches, they're like hospitals. They're full of sick people. I mean, some of you will be the attending position when somebody gets born in the new birth in the kingdom of God. And if you don't think that when you sit down and somebody comes in, and, I mean, you go to the doctor, what do you do? You sit down there in an office and what you get, at least when you come over to see me and to get a diagnosis, you get an hour. You may get five minutes with him. He looks down your throat, he looks in your ears, he asks you your symptoms, and then he says, okay, and he gives you a prescription, and off you go. 
Well, you know what? When you deal with people, that's the same thing you do. That's what I do. I mean, you come in to see me, you got some problems. How many times have you laid out the problems? I sit there, listen, patient, just like your doctor does. Well, you're telling me the symptoms. I'm Like you tell him the symptoms, I'm forming a diagnosis. And then what does he do? He gives you a prescription. What do I do? I say, here, take two verses and call me in the morning. See? I give you, I give you principles. I give you, his, his medicine is pills. Mine is spiritual. Mine are principles. But we're doing the same thing. We're doing the exact same thing. And my dream of a counseling ministry is to have a whole team of people ready to go in whatever scenario they need to have. You got somebody coming in with a cold and a flu? Fine, we got somebody. You got somebody spiritually seeking with broken arms and legs? Here. Somebody needs an appendectomy? There you go. Somebody is a trauma, you know, they're a trauma victim, they need something? Here's a team can jump right on it. Here's somebody else that's got a crack team that can deal with this problem or this problem or that problem. Hey, hospitals are where sick people go. And that's what churches ought to be. My favorite, my favorite place in the Bible for what a church should be in the Old Testament is found in 1 Samuel chapter 22, verses 1 and 2. And this is my church. This is my church. This is what I base. This is the greatest place in the Old Testament. I know there's some book of Acts in the church of Antioch. I understand all that. If you want a clear picture of what it is in the Old Testament when a church isn't even here yet, here it is. I mean, this will work for you. Now, look at this, 22.1. David therefore departed thence and escaped to the cave of Adullam. And when his brethren and all his father's house heard it, they went down thither to him. Now, David is in a cave. He's running from Saul, and he's down in a cave. And David is, is a lot like what a pastor should be. And he's got a great following. And when everybody hears where David is, they all go down. Now, this is a picture of a church. Now, the first thing I want you to see here is is verse 2. And everyone that was in distress, and everyone that was in debt, and everyone that was discontented, gathered themselves unto him, and he became a captain over them, and there were about with him about 400 men. Now, I, I take my whole, I think that the greatest size for a church it's about 400, based on that verse. I think that's the greatest. I think when it gets past that, and it might be able to go past that a while, but a little bit, but I think that you're getting at a point where if a church gets bigger than that, then you're pretty much defeating your purpose. And I preached that, and somebody's come up and said, after, what are you going to do when your church hits 400? Well, first of all, I don't think it'll hit 400. <clears throat> but uh, somebody would say, well, well if, you're, if you really believe that, what are you going to do when you hit church 400? Are you going to start another church? I said, why? Why should I stop what I'm doing here to start another church when you got 400? What I would do is just take a Sunday, ask everybody who's not involved in doing anything to go someplace else, and then we're good to go. You see how it works? Amen. Now, if you think I wouldn't do that, <laughs> I'd do that in a heartbeat. I mean, what is the point of going to church if you don't do anything? What is the point of going to church without your Bible? Does it make any sense to go to the gas station without your car? But hospitals are for sick people. And you notice something down here? David therefore departed the thence and escaped the cave of Adullam. And when he was brethren and all his father's house heard it, they went down with him. Here it comes. And everyone that was distressed. You in distress this morning? Everyone that was in debt. <clears throat> Amen. 
If everyone is discontented, gathered themselves unto him and became a captain over them and with them about four hundred. There isn't one well person in that cave. You see, some of you just think you're okay. Why, even David was out of fellowship from God at this point, running from Saul, when he should have been standing up and doing what God wanted him to do. In other words, everybody in that cave's a mess. There wasn't one right person in there. Wasn't one well person in there. Everybody had their issues. You see, we lose our perspective sometimes. And that's where our right becomes wrong. Our right becomes self-righteousness. Now, you wouldn't walk into KU Med Center, ask them for a tour, see the cancer ward, see the burn unit, see the trauma team at work there, you know. I mean, see the heart unit, see the newborn baby unit, pediatrics, the emergency room, the teams that are ready to go. And then somebody says, well, what do you think of our hospital? Well, I don't know. I don't know. It looks like a nice place. Well, what's wrong with our hospital? I don't know. There's a, there's a lot of sick people here. That's probably pretty stupid, doesn't it? Hospitals are supposed to have six people in them. Churches are too. The problem is that most people to look at it that way aren't studying for their medal exam to get their degree to start to work and help people who are sick. There wasn't a well person in that cave. Hey, let me tell you something. Hospitals are full of sick people. Churches are full of sick people. And this is where you need to have a balance, equity, in dealing with righteousness versus judgment. Many times dealing with God's people, our right, as I said, becomes our self-righteousness. It becomes our wrong. We take the position, well, so-and-so hasn't paid enough yet. You know what? I want to see him suffer a little more. Paul said, you know what? When he didn't do what was right, I was 100% against him. The moment he decides to do what is right, I'm 100% for him. You leave your emotions out of it. You see, churches ought to have, uh, simply have two dimensions to them in dealing with people. Uh, you want to do right? I mean, you don't want to do right? You want to do wrong? Then I'm 100% against you. Doesn't mean I'm not your friend. Doesn't mean I won't help you. But you're there, I'm here. The other dimension is you want to do right? Then I'm 100% for you. Now, see, there's righteousness and judgment. Now, see? Now, let me show you the, how the balance works. The balance is called grace. Even though you don't want to do right right now, my job and your job is to hang with you as long as I can till you make it absolutely impossible for me to help you. And that becomes your choice. Hey, come on. How many of people went to the doctor? Doctor told them for 20 years, you need to lose weight. You're eating wrong. Your cholesterol's off the chart. You need to quit smoking. You need to do this. You need to do that. We just do what we want to do. You go in and the doctor says, look, you're really overweight. You're eating terrible. Your cholesterol, your triglycerides are off the chart. You're going to have a heart attack or you're going to have a stroke. We just keep eating all we want. For 20 years, he told us every time we went, you're going to have some medical problems. We just did what we wanted to do. And finally, you have the heart attack. Finally, you got diabetes. Finally, you have a stroke. Now you go into the doctor. They take you to the emergency room. They call your doctor. Does he say, 
I told him so. Don't call me. <laughs> I told that guy for 20 years he was headed for a heart attack, and he just stuck another Twinkie in his face. He just out and had those double scoop ice creams. He smoked like a chimney. He just did whatever he wanted to do. I met that guy every year and told him, stop this, stop that. You're going to have a heart attack. And now he does. Don't call me. Is that what he does? No. He's a professional. He knows what's best for you, but his job is to help fix you whatever your choosing may be of how you wind up. And that's what a church should be. That's what ministry is. That's the way it has to be. Now, can God's people, I'm sure in his mind, I'm sure in his mind he looks at some people, he's human too. I'm sure in his mind he, when these guys come in four or five years in a row and he knows where they're going, he knows where it's headed, he knows what the end result is going to be, I'm sure he forms a private opinion in his mind. I'm sure there's people out of his office that says, that, he says, that guy is an idiot. He calls the nurse in. She says, well, he's still overweight or she's still this and he's still smoking. Yeah, he, he just, I don't know. Well, you know what? What are you going to do? Like, I mean, some people just going to do. I just, I, she says, yeah, he's just an idiot, isn't he? She says, yeah, he's a nice idiot, but he's an idiot. You don't feel, you don't think you don't feel that way in the ministry? Don't you know anytime you know what's best for your kids and they don't listen to you? Do you not tell them how stupid they are or they're idiots or you're going to pay the price for this? They don't listen either. But that doesn't mean when they get in a wreck or they get in a problem, you're not there. Churches are like hospitals. I'll say it again. You can't fix your problem with the same thinking that caused the problem. You've got to change the attitude, not just the action. Some people have to get a heart attack before they quit smoking. Some people have to get diabetes before they sell out the Twinkies. Some people have to get the disease and get the bad end of it because that's the only way they learn anything. That's where we're at. That's where we're at. Paul told this church in verse 7 and 8, you forgive him, you comfort him, and then you confirm your love toward him. People get confused sometimes. They get their emotions involved and they, uh, they lose their perspective. They take things too personal. You know, in your life and my life, the first fundamental thing we need to do is understand how God looks at sin. I mean, in our mind, you know, we think that in the scale, the t sin is a scale 1 to 10. As long as we stay in the 1 to 4 range, we're okay. But, oh, God help the people in the 6, 7, 8, 9, and 10 range. And you know, that's not true. That's not the way God looks at it. You take a guy who steals a dollar off somebody's desk at work because everybody's to lunch and he sees four quarters over there and nobody's looking. He stripped it into his pocket. And then you, oh, you've done that before, haven't you? You understand where it's coming from? We've been wondering where all those quarters in the offering have been coming from. Now I know. And then you have somebody else that embezzles money for $250,000, you know, and we look at that and we think, Oh, this is a real crook, and this is no big deal. You know what God sees? God never sees the amount of the money. God just sees the heart of two thieves. It's us who put the standard on it, doesn't it? Somebody out there gets, falls into adultery and commits adultery, and we think, oh, what a terrible thing that is, and it is. But somebody else just lusts after somebody, and we think, oh, that's okay, you see? In God, it's the same. He that looketh after a woman to lust after her has already committed adultery in the heart. 
Sin is in the heart. It isn't in what you do. It's in your heart. Somebody says, well, somebody, uh, that guy that walked into that 7-Eleven store and shot that person down there, killed him dead, and robbed the place and killed him dead and killed that guy that had two children. And boy, I'll tell you what, they ought to give him the death penalty. I hope they put him away and lock him away. He never gets out. But some Christian can go hate a brother or a sister in Christ, and we think that's okay. When God says, if you hate your brother in your heart, you're a murderer. Just as viable and guilty as the one who pulled the trigger. We have our scale. God has his scale. The first key to getting this straight in your mind is understanding that the Bible says two great verses. One of them is in 1 John chapter 5, verse 17. And it simply says that all unrighteousness is sin. It doesn't matter. The Bible says in 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 14, And what fellowship hath righteousness with unrighteousness? There is no fellowship between the two. When you sin against God, you're just in God's sight. Now, I'm not saying that there isn't, the physical consequences aren't different, and I think that's a lot of what confuses people. I mean, if you hate somebody in your heart or you say to somebody, I hate that guy, you know, everybody says, oh, we're all human. You know, I, we, I've hated people too in my life. Yeah, you're all right. Come on, let's go get a cup of coffee and talk about it. But if that same person would have walked into a thing and saw somebody or, and, and took a gun and blew his brains out, we'd say, what did you do? You just killed a guy. You're going to prison the rest of your life. But you see the difference is? In God's sight, they're both the same. But our physical consequences are different. The one, you'll buy the guy a cup of coffee and say, oh, it's okay, we all struggle with things like that, let me help you. But if somebody just shot somebody and killed them, I don't think you'd put your arm around them and say, oh, it's all right, y'all have a bad day, come on, let's go get a cup of coffee. <laughs> you see, there are physical consequences that are on different levels. You've got to factor that in. But when it comes to the spiritual side of it, all unrighteousness is sin. And when you don't understand that, then your right becomes wrong, and your right becomes our self-righteousness. You know, God's forgiveness for you and for me in anything in our life is on the spot. It's immediate. God doesn't say, well, just wait 15 or 10 years and see how you're really doing with this. It's immediate. It's right now. And here's where our right becomes wrong. Paul said, forgive this guy, comfort this guy, confirm your love to this guy. Verse 7, lest perhaps such a one should be swallowed up with overmuch sorrow. You see, the job of us as God's people, really, is not to make a person pay for their sin one minute more than they have to. That's our job. Leave your emotions out of it. Leave your feelings out of it. You got to go by the principles. You got to stay in touch with God's principles. It's the balance between righteousness and judgment. When we don't do that immediately, then he becomes right and we become wrong. You look at the story of the prodigal son in, in Luke chapter 15. There's a good example. The boy goes out. He wants his inheritance from his father. He wants to go. He thinks no, knows more about it in life than anybody else does. And he's out there doing his own thing. And finally, the Bible says, when he came to himself, he gets, winds up in a pig pen. He finds, now there's a good example of somebody turned over to the destruction of the flesh. He's out there, he's in a pig's pen, he's eating what the pigs eat. And he's thinking back home, man, my dad's place was a great place. We had all kinds of great stuff back there. Look at me, man, I'm stuck in this pig pen. And then he goes back to his father. 
And when he goes back to his father, his father had been looking for him. She's him coming a long way off. Throws a party. Happy. It was the elder son that had the problem with it. It was somebody who got their emotions involved in it, that didn't understand the principles, didn't want to understand the principles. And you know, and I've never, I've never, I've never really understood that older boy's problem. Because I've heard it taught wrong all my life that he was mad because, you know, that the kid got his inheritance and, and took that thing and wasted it on riotous living and all that. But when you read the passage, the old man, that Bible says that he took his inheritance and he divided it to both of them. That older kid got his when the younger kid got his. Now, the older guy may have put it in the bank and saved it, but the other kid may have put it on riotous living. But the bottom line is, what was his deal? He didn't lose anything. He got the same amount. In fact, he got more than the kid, the younger one did because that was the principle. He got his inheritance. It wasn't like he got cheated out of anything. His problem is a pure attitude problem. His problem is a pure attitude of unforgiveness. His attitude is one, I got my emotions involved in this. His matter isn't about, well, he got the money and I didn't. They both part of the life. He's upset because of the fact he's just not ready to forgive that kid. And he states it. He says, well, I stayed here. He says he was out here. You know what he's basically saying? He hadn't paid enough for it yet. We don't have that right in our lives, folks. My God, if I took that position, well, some of you never get back to church. You don't, I don't have a right to say you haven't suffered enough, you haven't paid enough. When you do what's right with God and you make it right with God, that's the end of it. You may have to suffer the consequences physically for the rest of your life, but even in that case, God will make the path easier for you if you do what's right. But that story, that prodigal son, you see, when we don't do, uh, do that immediately, then we become like that elder brother, and it becomes a problem. Now, many times, and this is why he says, if you don't forgive him, he gets swaddled up in his own grief. And when that happens, then he who was wrong now becomes right, and we who were right now become wrong. Many times, guilt, sorrow. Many times they can't forgive themselves. This is called a mental attitude sin. You're going to run into this a lot when you deal with people. A mental attitude sin is simply the fact that God has forgiven you, but you can't forgive yourself. And that's a mental attitude sin against God. You're going to find that a lot when people do something and they don't understand. Uh, they get a lot of guilt over it. They get a lot of guilty conscience over it. And, and even though they try to make it right with God, and they do make it right with God, they can't forgive, and that God has forgiven them, they can't forgive themselves. And that's a situation that you have to be careful of because uh, when you deal with people. Because guilt, sorrow, those things can keep you from ever getting back, or when you do get back, keep you from ever getting where God wants you to be. Let me tell you something. Sometimes people who do wrong need just as much help after they get right than they needed to get right in the first place because of these very things in their life that, they, that come along with that. And just as not doing right will ruin them if they don't get right, after they get right, if they still struggle with what they did, even after making it right with God, it will still, in most cases, ruin them. And our job as a hospital, a medical center, our job is to find cures. Our job isn't to help spread disease. Our job is to find the fastest solution to solving a person's problem having the team ready to be able to get in there to take whatever it takes. In time, as I'm giving you these principles, you will form yourself into these groups that will understand that you'll work just like when somebody comes in in a trauma case 
One doctor doesn't come in and do this. He has somebody else do this. They evaluate this. They evaluate that. They're all on the same page with the same medical procedures, and then they put it in fact. You'll be on the same page except with biblical principles, but you'll do the same thing. Somebody makes a mistake, a terrible one, according to our scale, you know, uh, you know then you got to look at it first at, at God's scale. We don't have a scale in sin. It isn't like this or that. Oh, the physical consequences again may be more. I mean, you, you get a speeding ticket. That's, you pay a $200 fine for that. You rob a bank, you go to jail for 10 years. I mean, the, the consequences are different, but in God's mind, what God sees is right unrighteousness, and that's what's sin. And when you make it right with God, you make it right with the people. If that's the case, you have to. If there was somebody wronged in the deal, uh, but we feel that they haven't paid enough yet. They haven't suffered enough. Maybe that person uh, has been a jerk. Many times people who do things are jerks. That's why they did things wrong in the first place. But let me ask you a question. You and I never been a jerk? Uh, my wife tells me I am all the time. I mean, I know, and I know if I am, you are. Yeah, thank you. Thank you for getting on board here. William's the only honest jerk we got here this morning. The rest of you are dishonest jerk, but that's good. Drink one, do you? <laughs> now, that's just the way it goes, you see. And in time, they get beat up so much, maybe by themselves, <laughs> many times by other Christians who are not willing to forgive them. They're going to hold it out. I've known Christians that have held things against people for 20 years. 20 years. And it's all because deep down inside, they, they want to have this spiritual facade, you know, that they're right and this other person is wrong. I told somebody one time, you know, people that carry things like that, if you're right, you don't have to go to those lengths to prove you're right. right. Now, here's why it's so important to get this down. <clears throat> and this is really a key thing for you here from this point on. <clears throat> Last week talked about how unforgiving spirit will take in time and destroy you through that root of bitterness. Two weeks ago, I guess it was. Let me show you another principle on forgiveness. And, um, and you, you need to get this one down. The Bible says concerning you and me on the topic forgiveness. Now remember, God forgave you in the person of Christ way before uh, you asked for it. He forgave you on Christ. Ephesians chapter 1 said, when Christ died on the cross and put everything in Christ. He forgave you in Christ. That's why you're supposed and I are supposed to forgive people in Christ, in the name of Christ. He made him the high priest, put your sins and my sins on him. All you have to do to get that is accept his sacrifice on the cross. Now remember, God forgave you in the person of Christ, like I said, way before we even asked for it. <clears throat> Two great verses on forgiveness. Ephesians 4, 32. You probably already know this one. And be ye kind one to another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, even as God, for Christ's sakes, hath forgiven you. The other one is Colossians 3, verses 12 through 14. And it says this, Put on, therefore, as the elect of God, holy and beloved, bowels of mercy, kindness, humbleness of mind, meekness, long-suffering, forbearing one another and forgiving one another. If any man have a quarrel against any, even as Christ forgave you, so also do ye. And above all these uh, things, put on charity, which is the bond of uh, perfect perfectness. Proof of your obedience to Christ is your willingness to forgive as Christ forgave you. We are priests in his stead in the person of Christ. 
Now, you want to see why people who don't forgive and forget end up the way they do? There are some people out there that are God's people that are going to heaven or the most bitter people you ever met in your life. They see the downside of everything. They have carried things around and they have no spirit of God in the sense of forgiveness. And they have got the root of bitterness. And where, what compounds that? What actually compounds? Last time we talked about the root of bitterness and the things that happened in you. Now let me show you the compounding effect that accelerates this. Remember I told you how quickly it grows? I went under the ground in darkness and how swiftly it grows, how strong it gets, how quickly it compounds itself. Here's the reason why. Here's the reason why. Bitterness, no, no productivity for God, never seeing what God sees or accomplishing what God saved them for, always complaining, always seeing the dark side of everything, always miserable, one crayon in their box. Here's the reason why. Here's the reason why. Two great principles on unforgiveness. The first one's Matthew chapter 6, verse 14. And here it comes. This is why you better learn to forgive or you're going down and not up. For if you forgive men their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you forgive not men their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. You see that? Now you're still saved and you're on your way to heaven. But in your daily confession to your Father as the high priest, when you don't, you don't forgive somebody else, and you go in your hypocrisy to ask God for your forgiveness for your trespasses and the things you do every day, he just simply shuts the door and you don't get forgiven. He simply says, hates the position. You don't do it for somebody else. Why should I do it for you? I forgave you unconditionally. That was your salvation. I made you a priest. As a priest at the order of Melchizedek, you follow the model of my son, the high priest, Jesus Christ. Instant forgiveness. No motions involved, nothing brought into it. You simply forgive on the basis that I forgive you. Now, if you can't do that, then on your daily, daily sin in your life, there'll be no forgiveness for you. And those sins will stack up in your life. Those sins will come to the place where they, in time, they compound in your life. He says over in Mark chapter 11, verse 25, when ye stand praying, forgive. If any have ought against any, that your Father also which is in heaven may forgive you your trespasses. But if you do not forgive, neither will your Father which is in heaven forgive your trespasses. You don't forgive the others in your life on a daily basis, God won't forgive yours. And so they stack up. Pretty soon, you got to get a storage shed for them. Pretty soon, you got to look for an empty warehouse. And as they build up in your life, and they start to compound themselves, they accelerate the bitterness process, they accelerate all of the things that go along with it, and before you know it, those things are compounding, and the rest of your life, you don't see anything but darkness. You become miserable, you become unproductive, you lose your zeal, all you do is get consumed all day long. You're always worried about this or that. You're judgmental about everybody else out there because why? What's the bottom line? What's the root problem? The root problem is God hasn't forgiven your sins for the last 15 years of your life and you've got a closet full of them. That's why. You don't forgive the people in your life on a daily basis. God doesn't forgive your sins on a daily basis. Oh, you're going to heaven. He forgave you unconditionally at salvation. It's in the everyday events, the breaking of the fellowship, 
And that's why, that's why root problems. You see miserable Christians. You see Christians that are always talking about everybody. You see Christians that are always causing problems and always whining about this and whining about that and, and talking about everybody else and all the problems here and all the problems there. What you've got is somebody who vicariously in their own life are viewing everything out there. They look at the church. Why, there's so many problems in the church. Yeah, just like there's so many sick people at KU, you idiot. But when you get in that position, you don't see those things. When you get in those positions of unforgiveness, the problem is not the other people really. There's always going to be people with problems. What is that your deal anyhow? The problem is that you have not had your sins forgiven for so many years. You were warehousing to the point you got them stacked up in the garage, in the basement, in the upstairs, in every crack and cranny. You got seven, seven uh, places running to put them in, and you got a warehouse full of them. And it takes its toll. Bible makes it real clear, and boy, does that concept answer a lot of questions in people's lives of why they are the way they are. In 40-some years of the ministry, I've seen some of the most wicked, bitter Christians that you have ever met in your life, and sometimes I've said to myself, how in the world can that person be a Christian? But yet, I know they are a Christian. You know what the answer is? Right there. You get to that place in your life where you don't forgive. You get to the place in your life where you develop a hardened heart that you want people to pay the price. God says, all right, let me just show you some things about paying the price. When you won't forgive others and their daily failures, then God doesn't forgive us in our daily failures. This is why the Bible says in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 15, what a great passage. It says, see that none render evil for evil unto any man, but ever follow that which is good, both among yourselves and to all men. You're a priest. I'm a priest. We're supposed to act like it. We're not supposed to render evil for evil to any man. That's not the business we're in. But that's the business God's people like to be in. We like to render evil for evil somebody else did. That's not my job. My job is not to put anything more on you than the Word of God says to put on you. And I'm not even to put it on you. I just preach it to it and the Holy Spirit of God puts it on you. But at the end of the day, it's simply this. My job is to not to cause problems. My job is to solve problems. I'm a physician. This is the hospital. Sick people are going to come in here. And when sick people come in, it's our job to see it as it is. View them as God sees them. Not to castigate them and throw them off. Not to talk about them or make uh, all kinds of problems for them. We're to take them, and when they don't want to do what's right, then we hold the line. We got the principles very clear. But that doesn't mean you don't give them grace. That doesn't mean you don't still love them. Maybe the reason they're not getting right is because you're not praying for them. Maybe you're so caught up in judging them, you, don't, you, don't, you can't say, why? They just don't want to get right. Why won't they get right? When was the last time you were on your knees weeping for them? Maybe that's the key. Amen. See? I go back to what I said, and boy, this is so true. That cave back there, everybody had a problem. There were some that were distressed. There were some that were perplexed. There were some that were in debt, and they had all kinds of infirmities. I just did fail to read in there that there was anybody, even the leader, that was right and good to go. Let me tell you something. We're all sinners, folks. I'm just telling you. 
you look at somebody out there going through something tough in your life and you can simply say to yourself, oh, but the grace of God, it wasn't you. And maybe next week it will be you. I've had people, I've had people in my life that, that didn't like me and hated me and caused me problems and found out four or five years later, ten years later, you know, something bad happened to them. <clears throat> they got cancer or their marriage fell apart or this or that or some sin fell into their life. Somebody comes up to me and tries to think that I'll be happy about it, you know, and say, oh, did you hear him and so-and-so, you know, he got what he deserved or she got what she deserved. Man, those things don't make me happy. That don't make me happy at all. I take no joy and no pleasure in another Christian fallen. I'm just sorry. I don't necessarily, it doesn't even matter if I like the person. That's not the case. That's not the point. And see what? Many times we get our personal emotions involved and we think, well, because we didn't like the guy, he got what he wanted. I know we all say what goes around comes around. I understand that and I know how it works. But that doesn't mean I have to be happy about it. And at the end of the day, I won't tell you what. It doesn't necessarily anything about that person, whether they fell or not. What really grieves me and bothers me is that every time a Christian goes down, the cause of Christ is what hurts. That's what takes the hit. That's what takes the hit. And when you don't forgive your daily f- problems in people's lives, then God doesn't forgive us. The Bible says, follow that which is good. He says, but follow, but ever follow that which is good, both among yourselves. You see, it's got to start with you first. You got to put the principles in your life first. And to all men, inward, outward, inward, outward. There's people out there that'll render people evil for good. That's the devil's crowd. That's what he does. We live in a world today that renders evil for good. If you're a Bible-believing Christian and you preach the Word of God and you try to help people, you get, you get labeled by the world as evil. The world is evil today and the world has come to the point and like it did in Isaiah 5 where truth has become wrong and wrong has become truth. We're upside down. So in the world, the devil's crowd, they'll look at, they'll look at, something, that, they'll look at something that is good and they'll render evil for good. See, that's what the devil does. He'll always do that. The, world, the devil will, 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 will always render evil for good. You do something good, It's like the old expression, no good deed will go unpunished. But then you get the religious world out there. And the religious world, they they only think in one dimension. And the religious world, where the world and the devil renders evil for good, the Christian world only renders good for good. And if you do good, they do good. You know, it's a, it's a thing where do unto me, do unto others, you know, and all that mindset, they, they render good for good. And that's where the world is at today. The world, unsaved world, they give evil for good. Most of God's people, they just give good for good. But it's God who steps out of the box. And it's you and I that needs to step out of the box. Because where the world renders evil for good and the Christians render good for good, it's God who renders good for evil. And he'll take what's bad in your life and my life and he'll turn it into good. And that's why that we're not to render evil for evil to any man. 
because God didn't do that for us. We're supposed to basically treat others like God has treated us. And that's the failure. The failure is because of our pride, of our self-righteousness, of our arrogancy of who we are, or our emotions get involved. We get to the point where we, we see something that somebody else did, and oh, how we hate that. But we ignore how many times we did the same thing to God. And God never rendered evil for evil to us. Never did. God always renders good for evil. That's what God does. And we're his priests. And the bottom line of everything that you and I do in this hospital that we have here, this trauma center, this walk-in clinic where you can come in from a sniffly cold to a major heart transplant or brain surgery and get what you need is because the bottom line of the church and everything that we do is reconciliation. When you reconcile people to God, they're automatically reconciled to you and me. End of story. You don't maybe like how they look, how they dress, how tall they are, how short they are. That's immaterial. You keep your emotions out of it. You never render evil for evil. You render good for evil. As long as that person wants to do what's right, Paul says, enough is enough. Sufficient is the punishment for this man. Because if we don't do that, and we don't, then we're just like everybody else. This church has to have a balance between righteousness and judgment. It has to have the equity of knowing how to work those levels and work those different angles. And it has to have the ability then to be able to, to uh, lay out every right way to give people the best chance they can. When you walk into a, a, a doctor's office and you have something that he's not sure of or something that's pretty complicated, he won't just jump in and give you something to do. He'll tell you if you've got breast cancer, if you have a prostate cancer, if you have some kind of cancer that can be have four or five different options to deal with it, he'll sit down and tell you those options. He won't always take the extreme. In other words, he'll let you decide because at the end of the day, it's your body. He's just the surgeon that's going to do the work. And at the end of the day, that person has to make the decision. Your job and my job is to lay out the options. But understanding the balance, the equity between righteousness and judgment. That yes, people are held accountable for what they do wrong. But there comes a point in their life when they make it right with God. Then that's when we, yes we were against them. Now we're for them. And we confirm that love. We comfort that person. We help that person. And we bring that person to where they need to be. As long as they want to do what's right. That's the key. And that's what my goal is. To take as many of you who want to be part of that. To form you into a team where we can just about cover every circumstance there is. And we can get in any scenario. Somebody can come in with any problem, and the people are there ready to go to be able to help them on the level. But that goes back to those four things, understanding the balance between those two. Well, let's hold up there.